if you want to deal with the injustice of this life, don't bother looking for justice here. Look to the future. There's justice coming. There's justice coming. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. And on today's program, Tom begins a new four-part series in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, titled, When Life's Not Fair. You don't have to go too far, it seems, in today's world to witness an incident or to hear groups demanding that justice be done. What about you? Have you ever experienced something that didn't seem fair? Something that felt like injustice? If so, how did you respond? Is there residual pain from the experience? Well, throughout this series, Tom will explore how God's Word reveals the reality that life is filled with injustice, but it also teaches how you should respond, even when the injustice seems great and the pain deep. Before we begin today, here's Tom with some opening thoughts about this new series. Tom? I think it's fair to say that the prevailing theme of 2020 was justice or injustice. Our media was focused on all the different kinds of injustices that are part of life in a fallen world, and those injustices are real, and we in no way want to belittle them. At the same time, the gospel brings us a solution for justice and injustice. It reminds us that justice is coming, that God is going to make all things right. And that's how we learn to live in a world racked by injustice. It's what Jesus did. He suffered the greatest injustice ever, and yet how did he respond? He kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That's how we have to live, and and James is going to help us know how to do that as we study together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. James chapter 5, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me to James chapter 5. What exactly do you give someone who's been proved innocent after spending the best part of their life behind bars, wrongfully convicted of a crime that they did not commit? Exactly what do you do for someone like that? Well, as recently as two years ago, Great Britain's Home Secretary moved to give such people a bill, a bill for the cost of room and board for the time they had spent in British prisons. Believe it or not, the Home Secretary, and you may have read about this in the paper at the time, a couple of years ago, the Home Secretary of the Labor Party actually fought to charge victims wrongly imprisoned about 3,000 pounds per year they were in prison. That's about $6,000 a year. The logic, as such as it was, was that an innocent man should not be in prison eating free porridge, yes, we all want to be doing that, and sleeping for nothing under regulation gray blankets. One article reported an example, a man by the name of Mike O'Brien. Mike O'Brien spent 10 years in jail wrongfully convicted of murder. While he was in prison, his baby daughter died, 
And when he was finally exonerated and discharged from the prison, he was charged 37,000 pounds or about $71,000 for room and board for his time in jail. Vincent Hickey, who was wrongly convicted for killing a paper boy, was charged 60,000 pounds, about $120,000 for the 17 years he had spent in jail. In that very wry, dry sense of of British humor, he said, if I had known this, I would have stayed on hunger strike longer. That way I would have had a smaller bill. You know, when you hear stories like that, It just sends a a sort of shiver up your spine. You realize that there are certainly times in this life, and there are many of them, when injustice is done, when life certainly isn't fair. And there are other times when life certainly doesn't seem to be fair to us. As I thought about injustice and how common it, it is in a part of our world, I sat down this week and just made a really brief list of Stories that I have heard from friends through the years of injustice that they have actually experienced. You find out, for example, that the person you married isn't at all who they claimed or appeared to be. You end up with a disabled child because of negligence on the part of the doctor. He'd been drinking before he arrived to care for your child. You're wrongly accused by a vindictive spouse of child abuse and locked away for 25 years to life. You lose your job through no fault of your own. You're passed over for that long-expected and promised promotion so that it could be given to the boss's young son who doesn't even half qualify for the job. You lose your retirement, what you've worked for your whole life because of criminal mismanagement among the company's directors. On and on the list could go of the injustices that are a part of this life. But perhaps the hardest form of injustice is when we bear the brunt of undeserved, unwarranted attacks upon us. You've experienced it. If you haven't, you will. I've certainly experienced it. I have in my files a letter, and there's no no need to recount the circumstances to you of such an unwarranted attack. A letter written about me that calls me a fulminating traitorous turncoat, guilty of the spirit of Judas and Demas. As a believer and as a pastor, not much worse could be said. That was exactly what was happening to James' first readers. They were bearing the brunt of a full frontal attack upon them. Notice back in chapter 2, James chapter 2, verse 6, this attack is identified, is not the rich, the ones who oppress you and personally drag you into court. There were some very wealthy, powerful, influential people in their communities who were also wicked and opposed to them who were using the courts to manipulate, to get their way, either to get a sort of vindictive spirit fulfilled or to gain some financial or political advantage. And then last week, we looked at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and we saw these people for who they are. They were even, in verse 4, withholding the pay from those day laborers who counted on that pay to feed their families. These believers were being treated unfairly. It's just unfair. So how should they respond? 
when life was to them patently unfair? Or more to the point, how should each of us respond when life just isn't fair? Well, I can tell you how we most commonly respond. There really are three common sinful responses that we have to injustice. The first of them is to accuse God of injustice and unfairness. There are a lot of people who wander our earth literally holding a grudge against God. They understand that God is all-powerful, that he's in charge, and so when injustice comes into their lives, their first response is to blame God and to hold him responsible. And literally, there are people who live their lives in a state of settled resentment and anger against God for something that has happened. A second sinful response to injustice that we face in our world is not turned at God, but turned at the people who were behind that injustice. It's harboring anger and bitterness toward those who have mistreated us. This, too, is a very common sinful reaction to injustice. I'll never forgive that person. I've heard that over and over again in my life as a believer and as a pastor. Someone who has been wrong say words just like that. I can never or I will never forgive that person for what they've done to me. A third sinful response is taking our own revenge, just getting even. I will get back at that person. They won't know where, they will know why. Sort of the common response. You know, I thought about this recently. It really is surprising, in a sense, how this theme dominates so many of the films and movies of our culture this theme of revenge, someone who has been unjustly attacked getting even because there is within the human heart a desire to exact revenge, to get my pound of flesh for how I've been treated. Now, all of those three are absolutely the wrong ways to respond. In James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, James tells us exactly how it is that we should respond when life is not fair, when injustice comes to us. Let me read these verses to you. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now notice that verse 7 begins with the word, therefore. James is about to apply to the brethren, he says in verse 7, what he has described in the first six verses in light of, he say, he's saying, in light of the sinful attacks leveled against you by the wicked, filthy, rich, and powerful, here's how I want you to respond. 
Therefore, in light of their actions, you respond like this. The basic connection between verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 12 is this. Verses 1 through 6 describes the injustice that the wicked, rich, and powerful had caused in the lives of these first century Christians. And verses 7 through 12 gives us the flip side, how the righteous should respond. He says, basically, we should wait in patience for the coming of the Lord. The wicked will be judged. All wrongs will be made right. Describing the connection of these first 12 verses, John Blanchard, an excellent commentator on this book, writes this. In the opening six verses of this chapter, James has been exposing and challenging the lives of the wealthy, ungodly men who defrauded and persecuted the poor and who lived in self-indulgent luxury. Now, Blanchard says, he turns from the oppressors to the oppressed, tells them how they should behave under pressure, and encourages them to look for the day of deliverance that will one day be theirs. This is, throughout the Scripture, a common biblical approach to say, let's rehearse what your opponents, what your oppressors are doing, and now let's rehearse what your response should be. You should wait for God to act. There's so many examples I could show you, but let me take you to one. Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 reflects this same sort of theme David is rehearsing the reality that we face opposition, we face oppression, we face the wicked who are out to hurt and do us injustice. Notice verse 12. Here's the wicked. They plot against the righteous and gnash at him with their teeth. Verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent the bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. That's the place and plan of the wicked. Well, what's our temptation in response to that? When we see those who are prospering in our world, who thumb their nose at our faith, and perhaps in some circumstances, and certainly in other parts of the world, at us personally, and the attacks get very personal, how are we tempted to respond? Look at verse 1. We're tempted to fret because of evildoers. We're tempted to be envious toward them. Notice verse 7 again, the middle of the verse. We're tempted to fret because of him who prospers in his way, to worry about them because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. That's our temptation to respond in one of those two ways, either to worry or to envy. But what's the solution? Verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Seek, do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. How can you have that kind of attitude? How can you face injustice like that? Well, look at the next verse, verse 9. For evildoers will be cut off. For those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. David says, just think for a moment about the end of those who oppose you. Remember that the end of the story has not yet been written. The last chapter is not yet in the book. Verse 15, you see the same point made. 
The wicked sword will enter into their own heart and their bows will be broken. Verse 20, the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be like the grass and flower, grassy flowers of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Verse 37, mark the blameless man. Behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity. He will have an end, that is, a good end, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. This is the consistent message of Scripture. If you want to deal with the injustice of this life, don't bother looking for justice here. Look to the future. There's justice coming. There's justice coming. And that's exactly the message that James has for us. Turn back to James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, he identifies for us here our proper response to life's injustices. In fact, he identifies five different responses that you and I should have to the injustices of life. You'll notice, if you look in this paragraph, there are five imperatives or five commands. Each of those commands tells us exactly how we ought to respond to the unfairness of life. Now, I want to spend all of our time today on the first response to injustice because it is the focus of this passage, and it's also absolutely foundational. When life isn't fair... And I want you to think for a moment about your own life. Think about injustice that you have suffered or are suffering. When life isn't fair, our first response should be this. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Notice verse 7. Be patient, brethren. By the way, this is another strong argument for verses 1 through 6, referring to unbelievers, unbelieving, rich, and powerful people who were oppressing Christians. Because if we're talking about Christians in verses 1 through 6, then what would James' practical application be? If those are Christians doing those things in verses 1 through 6 primarily, he's not going to apply that by saying, be patient. His application is going to be repent, get your heart right, mourn, just like he says back in James chapter 4. So it's clear here that this is a transition. Verses 1 through 6 addressed to unbelievers, wicked unbelievers who are oppressing Christians. Verse 7, we're now talking to Christians, and to them he says, be patient. Now, there are a couple of words in the New Testament for patience. This one is usually translated as patience, and it refers to being patient with people. The other word for patience occurs later in this passage, down in verse 11. It's the word translated endurance. It means to endure bad circumstances. So patience is being patient with people. Endurance is enduring difficult circumstances. Now, what does this word patient mean? We're to be patient. Well, it's the opposite of being short-tempered. It literally is being long-tempered. D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary, writes, it's an attitude of self-restraint that enables one to refrain from hasty retaliation in the face of provocation. 
The noun form of this word is often translated as long-suffering, to suffer long without responding in revenge or retaliation. So obviously implied in this be patient is you don't have the right to take revenge. Part of being patient means don't try to get even. Don't try to settle the injustice here. You remember Paul's words to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Never take your own revenge. Instead, James says, we are to, instead of taking revenge, instead of getting even, we are to bear with them. We are to suffer long in the same way that God suffers long with people. Now, there are two contexts in which you and I need to be patient with the injustice that comes to us from others. Or let me put it a different way. Injustice comes to us for two different reasons. When you and I suffer injustice, it comes for one of two reasons. Number one, it comes simply out of the overflow of the fallenness of people. In other words, it's not that we're being persecuted for our faith or anything like that. It's simply that we're around people who are fallen, and that fallenness overflows into our lives and spills injustice. You remember Paul said unbelievers are hateful and hating one another. And so you and I can sometimes suffer injustice simply because we live in a fallen world and fallen people are prone to injustice because they're prone to promote themselves. Turn back to 2 Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter in the second chapter. And notice verse 18. Here we have injustice like that. Injustice that is simply the overflow of someone else's fallenness. And we get hurt by it. Verse 18, here uh, Peter is talking about how we are to respond submissively in the midst of suffering. And he says in verse, thir- verse 18, rather, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, the word unreasonable, the Greek word for unreasonable is the word scolios. You recognize that word. It's a word we use to describe the curvature of the spine. It's a word that means crooked. He says, I want you to submit yourselves and be respectful to those who are over you who are crooked, who are unreasonable, who are wicked. Verse 19, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right, in other words, if you're just doing what you're supposed to do, and in this case, your employer, let's apply it to our modern terms, your employer is a wicked person, and you get treated unjustly because of that, and you suffer for it patiently, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So sometimes injustice comes into our lives simply as the overflow of the fallenness of the people around us. 
But sometimes, secondly, injustice comes into our lives deliberately and purposefully because of our faith, because you're a Christian, because of what you believe. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus addresses this form of injustice that can come to believers. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Here it's not just the overflow of somebody's fallenness affecting our lives. It's intentional. It's designed to get at us because of our righteousness, because of whose we are. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, When Life's Not Fair. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.